Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Georgie Toma, founder and CEO of Heart and Brainworks. There has been a significant uptick in the number of people leaving their jobs in recent months. And we discuss how many of the drivers of the current great resignation can have their origins traced back to poor management of psychosocial hazards. We also look at some of the neurobiological responses to some of these hazards and how they can be better understood and managed. So my background, I I came to this space both through my research work and through my personal experience. And I've had my own encounter with burnout and um, like a good soldier, I ignored the symptoms and signals my body was sending me and kept on pushing myself to the point that burnout became depression. Depression became suicidal depression. And I I tried to reach out through the EAP program of my employer, but I didn't manage to find kind of a counselor that helped. And so from a moment of, I guess, when I realized the decision had to be made to move forward, I created a system. And originally that system was just for me to get a hold of, of my life, really, and of my mental health. And that became what is now known as the Wellbeing Protocol, which is a step-by-step program to reduce burnout, on which I have done research together with a team of researchers at the University of Auckland. But really was that, so it was the personal experience that prompted, I guess, also a shift in career because I I ended up uh, working for my own consultancy, Heart and Brain Works, and working with organizations on looking at psychosocial hazards because one of the triggers of my my burnout were several psychosocial hazards that were present in the workplace where I was working at the time. But of course, then there weren't as many conversations about burnout or actually no conversations about psychosocial hazards as there are now. So that's, I guess, the summary of uh, of where I am. So currently, as I mentioned, I, I have my own consultancy, Heart and Brain Works, and I'm also a research fellow at the University of Auckland. And there's nothing like personal experience to yeah. drive that passionate interest, isn't there, in wanting to make a change. Yeah. I wonder, you know, when you, I mean, it's great that also you have the academic bent to it because obviously when it comes to defining some of these terms, there's the academic definition and there's mm. the ways we describe these concepts in workplaces. So if someone asked you what psychosocial risks and hazards were, well, how would you describe it to them? Yeah, so all of these are elements in the work that can pose a threat to our mental health and mental well-being. So some examples could be um, high job demands coupled with low resources, uh, lack of autonomy at work, a fast work uh, work pace. Um, It could be bullying, harassment. So these are some examples of, of psychosocial hazards. Fatigue, for example, certain occupations are prone to that. These are some examples. And what are you seeing as the most prevalent ones right now? And how's that changed, you know, pre-COVID, COVID, now? So 
I think one of the massive things that have changed, one of the most significant things that have changed is awareness. So COVID has led to an increase in uh, symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression, um, and post-traumatic stress disorder, including some psychiatrists wanted to coin the term of, of COVID stress disorder. So it has given a rise to all of these phenomena associated with mental distress, right? And, so, and that meant that mental health has become part of our conversations, right? So it's become more normalized and it's become more forefront. We've also seen changes in legislation. So for example, in um, Australia, we know that New South Wales, uh, Western Australia um, and Victoria now is in the process of, of, of passing a code um, of practice of managing psychosocial hazards in the workplace. So we're seeing the legislative side becoming more aware of the importance of mental well-being and also enforcing more the legal responsibilities of businesses to monitor and do everything possible to reduce or um, or minimize psychosocial hazards. So that is um, uh, that is very helpful. And so in my work, so I, I help companies conduct psychosocial hazard audits using validated instruments, using focus groups. And so one of the biggest things that I've seen post-COVID as a psychosocial hazard was uh, workload, specifically high job demands and low resources. But more interestingly, I've seen a rise, and this is not only from my work, but is also uh, something that has come up in research studies as well, a rise in incivility. So incivility is a term used to describe instances of disrespect that have ambiguous, that, that are ambiguous, right? So those moments when you, you hear a remark and you don't know did that person actually mean disrespect or not. And it is very interesting because when you look at incivility, those instances of disrespect, they are usually a sign that there is something to do with organizational culture that isn't functioning quite well. And when you see instances of disrespect, you usually get a lower score um, under the one of the psychosocial hazards being support from manager. So what we've seen is a correlation between low manager support, low trust, low organizational trust, and issues of incivility. So from my work, those are the things that came up. But it, it's interesting, as I mentioned uh, before, this is also mirrored in reports, but also research that's coming out now. So just recently, well, not quite recently, but Gallup has a report, for example, on burnout, on the, the, the causes of burnout. And it's possibly one of the most extensive reports um, in the sense of like the number of employees that they've researched and so on and so forth. And what they found in their report is that the number one cause of employees being burned out and experiencing mental distress is what they called, um, sorry, they call it unfair treatment at work. So they're not necessarily using psychosocial hazard instruments to assess this, they have their own tools. But when you read what the description of their categories are, they're very similar to a series of psychosocial hazards. So what they call unfair treatment at work encompasses instances of bias, instances of an unsupportive relationship with a manager, instances of disrespect and incivility, unfairness in compensation, Right? So they have found that that is by far a greater cause of burnout than, for example, workload. So that is very significant because research studies have shown us um, as well that the relationship between how your relationship with your manager or supervisor is 
and burnout and attrition, there is a direct correlation there. So if this relationship is unhealthy or unsupportive, that poses a risk to the individual mental well-being and ultimately to the company. So yeah, these are the things that have come out. Mm, that's recently. fascinating. Gosh, there are so many things there I want to unpick, but I'm going to choose one yeah. that, that comes to mind as you're talking. One of the, the challenges for a lot of organizations right now is that you know, low resources, you know, hard to get staff, but the workload hasn't changed. And and if we're saying that perhaps it sounds like actually that relationship with manager might be the more important place to start if it's really hard to fix those other two psychosocial hazards necessarily. Is is that something you're seeing or or how would you approach that? I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that each organization is different. And so the the there is no solution off the shelf that you can just buy. So you have to go through your own organizational audit to see what is actually happening with you. And and then from there, think of an intervention. So actually, when I talk to, well, when I talk to anyone, really, I, 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 there are really four steps that you need to take into account. One is monitoring of psychosocial hazards. So using tools that are actually validated to do that and employee engagement surveys are not. Right. So those are not tools that give us accurate measurements Um, Two, there has to be prevention, three intervention and four rehabilitation for those that for that for that percentage of the uh, of your workforce that needs that. Right. So when you look at prevention and intervention, like you're looking at a series of interventions. So you need to keep into account that individual level interventions are not sufficient, that they have to be done you know, together with organizational level intervention. So uh, we've got research studies that show that when you combine person-centered intervention with organizational interventions, that's when you get the best results. So some examples of organizational interventions, right? What can you do? You can, for example, provide your managers with training to have psychologically safe performance review conversations. You can have a program for your managers. You can call it whatever you want, but the toolkit that they have to go through, like a compulsory training that they have to go through so that they understand what are the requirements of their role with regards to creating a culture of respect and well-being and high performance, right? I'm just giving examples of some of the work right, that, that I've done with people, but there's, you have to first understand what your challenges are. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned before that many organizations have at the moment low resources, and that's certainly the case. And so one example is nursing. So there are severe ner- nurse shortages, not only in New Zealand and Australia, but across the globe. So there's a fierce competition for nurses, and I was just talking recently with uh, with a client from, from Australia and we're saying how the UK, the NHS, is currently printing full-page posters in all these nursing publications and, and offering incredible packages for relocation to the UK. So you need to understand that, for example, in healthcare, one of the most prevalent psychosocial hazards, well, of course, there's workload. Like, we need to take that into account wherever you have staff shortages you will have issues with high job demands, right? But another significant issue is incivility, bullying, and violence. And this has been documented in research for many, many years. So, for example, in Australia, in the public system, salaries are the same, right? So you can't be competitive on salary. 
your ability to recruit sufficient staff can, to some extent, be impaired. But what you can do is an intervention on a culture level, right? So you can work on a program where it is, okay, in our staff, there is respect, there is civility, there's high performance. So that's just an example of. How much do you find there's almost a chicken and egg between identifying what those hazards are and building the trust at the same time for people to feel they can disclose what those hazards are? Yeah. I mentioned there's an intertwined relationship between the two. Correct. So you see in a lot of organizations, well, it is not actually, it's not fair to say not all of There are some organizations where there is already low trust, right? So people are tired of answering surveys because, you know, why bother? Because nothing ever changes. So when you as a, as a manager, um, whether you're a well-being manager, health and safety uh, manager, HR manager, the first and most important thing is to get executive buy-in, right? So you prepare a business case and you show, okay, these are our li- you know, these are our liabilities, or we're losing this many people. This is the attrition rate. We are, you know, we can't fill this many positions. We need to undertake this audit in order to actually make changes. So that's one thing, getting executive leadership buy-in. The second thing is conducting these audits with an external provider that does also focus groups. Right. So what that means is that you need to capture quantitative data, which you do through surveys. The numbers are important, but you need to capture qualitative data and you need to analyze it accordingly. So you have themes that emerge from this data that helps you explain in depth, give those numbers a story and greater depth. Right. And so when you use um, an external provider who is unbiased, people are more likely to talk and. People are likely to talk, as I mentioned, when they feel that what they say will actually matter, right? So that's why when I work with organizations, we go through several steps of consultation, and that always entails executive leadership. Um, Yeah. Hmm. And what do you do when when I'm thinking back to your example of saying nursing, and it's it's a really good one because you take, say, DHBs, for example, or healthcare in general, there are some really hard-baked challenges in the way those services are delivered so from that point of view you know what so where do you start or or what do you find in terms of those things that you're able to actually control and change versus those things that will take years to change um again you need to start by measuring right and depending on what the problem identified is it's hard for me to just um, offer a general answer to that because actually there are no general answers. So you need to see what is present in your staff now and also a way of continuously and also continuously monitor that because it can change every, every quarter, right? So, but what I can say is that there are steps that you can take even on an organizational level and that sometimes... Um, a person level intervention can be can be useful and can work. So we've had research that has shown, for example, that interventions in stress reduction or burnout reduction that have elements of cognitive behavioral um, strategies or elements of mindfulness training are very effective or can be very effective, right? So Again, I'm just going to go back to this answer that I always repeat. 
It's about first identifying what is happening in your organization. And then when you, when you work with the provider to do that, or when you do it yourself, the solutions will come out of the problems. That's a good segue. So I'm going to cough. <laughs> That's a good segue to talk about the neurobiology of stress. Yeah, so first of all, when we're talking about that term, what does that mean? Yeah, so um, I think uh, we need to understand that stress is natural and it is healthy, right? It is a response. Is um, It is a response. It, it, neurobiological means that it is a response that takes place in our brain and in our body, right? And of course, they are um, interconnected. And we need to understand that really this response has allowed us to survive, has allowed us to adapt and to be flexible. We need to understand, though, that stress becomes a problem when we are dealing with chronic activation. So what that means is a chronic stress response. And um, I actually want to share with you some of the most recent um, understanding that we have about the neurobiology of stress. So historically, um, our understanding of stress has changed. So initially, we used to believe that you have a stimuli, like, for example, you're running you're crossing the street and you notice a car driving towards you at high speed, right? And you would have a stress response, seeing this stimuli, you kind of get it triggered, your body, um, you know, you have your heart beating faster, you're, you're potentially sweating a little bit, your muscles get tense so that you can start to walk faster or run so that you save yourself basically right so the first our first understanding of stress was that you need to have an external event or stimuli and that triggers a stress response then as our understanding of the human psychology became more sophisticated we came to realize that it doesn't have to be an external or real world stimuli a thought a worry thought has an equal power to trigger a neurobiological stress response, right? So the centers in our brain operating through the vagus nerve gives the same message to our adrenal glands to produce cortisol uh, through our heart to be faster and so on, right? So that was the second stage. But still, these two explanations of stress do not um, account for chronic activation because people have been shown to have the chronic activation of stress, right? The neurobiological reality of stress in our body and all the health implications of that, even when they're not necessarily thinking about worry thoughts. And so the new theory, it's called GUTS. It's called generalized. It, GUTS means generalized unsafety theory of stress. And it's been proposed by Dr. Broshat and his team. So it is based on the groundbreaking work of neuroscientist and psychiatrist Stephen Porges. So, so Dr. Stephen Porges really revolutionized the way we understand the brain and in particular, the role our cranial nerves, the vagus nerve specifically, plays in regulating our nervous system, right? So he really changed the way in which we understand issues such as heart rate variability and the role that has in, 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 in health and really understand our nervous system responses. So based on, on, on his groundbreaking word, what they, what they propose is that one, the stress response is not triggered 
the stress response is always on. It is inhibited by the brain. This is very, very important. Very important. So from an evolutionary perspective, if you think about it, this makes perfect sense because you want the fastest response time. And the fastest response time is an in- if an inhibition is removed rather than an activation happening. So basically, we are stressed the whole time. Yay. And that's good. That's the natural way, right? And our brain, certain centers in our brain, primarily in our prefrontal cortex, inhibit the stress response all the time. And how do they do that? By identifying cues of safety in the environment. So all of us right now, our brain is engaged in a process called neuroception. What that means is that we are constantly scanning the environment for cues of safety. And if we find them, our brain sends a message through the vagus nerve, okay, relax. We go into a state that's called social engagement. So that's a state where we are able to function, we are able to be creative, we are able to engage with others and do our work well. Now, here's the interesting thing. What Brushit and his team have found is that in our modern world, certain misinterpretations happening, allowing our brain, or rather making our brain, not perceive those cues of safety. And so the message is gets sent to our body, a constant message that there are no cues of safety. So the stress response is not inhibited. So let me give you an example, right? So we start uh, identifying these cues of safety from when we are babies, from when we are born, right? An infant would um, start to learn that when he or she cries, a parent or caregiver comes and give them food, for example. So that's one of the initial cues of safety. But let me give you an example. Let's say you have two kids and, you know, the parents want to motivate one of the kids to get better grades. And they say, oh, why can't you be more like your sister? You know, she always gets straight A. Why can't you work harder? So it's important to understand that for a kid, parents or caregivers represent safety. First and foremost is safety. So why is that? It's because survival, food, um, food and survival is linked to the parents being, uh, feeding you, right? Being happy with you. So when a parent expresses dissatisfaction at some level in the brain, there is a fear response. Oh, okay. Over time, when the kid hears that repeated, why can't you be more like sister? Why can't you work harder? The child brain forms a belief, an incorrect belief, that in order to feel safe, in order to feel love and feel accepted, he or she has to perform something to a specific standard, right? So, well, I have to do something to kind of earn that safety, earn that love. In this case, it's getting good grades, right? Now, fast forward over time, if this person encounters similar circumstances, it is likely for them to develop um, a perfectionist tendency, right? So what that means is that they constantly feel they have to perform to a high standard they constantly feel they fall short somehow. And this creates a stress response, right? This is just a very simple, I guess, a simple way of summarizing this. And then I imagine in the workplace, then in terms of those cues of safety, is that where, say, the impact may come out as incivility and or Mm. the relationship with manager, therefore, is, is important in creating those cues of safety? 
For sure. Absolutely. And it could be even as simple as you get an email from a client that's displeased. Now, for most humans, that's going to generate some kind of a stress response. But there are some humans who are better able to regulate that, right? Establish safety for themselves. Okay, well, you know, if a client is unhappy, it doesn't mean I will get fired or it's not the end of the world. I I have trust in my organization. I have trust in my manager, right? Hmm. Or not. So in terms of this, I, I love this idea of this choose of safety because I imagine that being both a mental and a physical artifact, if you wanted. So, I mean, in terms of knowing what they may be, is the simplest place to look at the psychosocial hazards and go, well, the opposite of that is a cue of safety or are there other things to look at as well? Um, yes. So the opposite of that is uh, a cue of safety. Um, but in the environment, um, so we have the concept of psychological health and safety, and we have the concept of psychological safety as Amy Edmondson has defined it. And they both work together, right? So in the sense that we want people, when people have the confidence and trust that their teammates and their managers have their back, when they can actually raise issues without fear of repercussion, right? And ask for help. Those are cues of safety, right? As well as some of the hazards that are part of what we call psychosocial hazards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to circle back to one of the things that you said earlier and talked about mm-hmm. the COVID traumatic stress. Yeah. H- how does that differ to post-traumatic stress? And, and what are some <laughs> of the, the signs and symptoms of, of that? I haven't read that much into the literature because to my knowledge, it hasn't, it hasn't, it's really been what what uh, the gist of it is, is that um, there are specific um, factors that cause stress related to COVID, right? So we're talking about fear about getting the infection, fear <coughs> over long-term COVID, um, having long-term COVID, and then how to manage the effects of long-term COVID, such as one of them is uh, fatigue or tiredness and how you can manage that being employed or not, fear over loved ones having COVID or caretaker responsibility. So there's a whole series of concerns that are just related with, with that, that we, we didn't have to think about before, right? So a whole of, um, series of stimuli for, for stress, so to speak, or for cues of unsafety that we haven't really had to take into account before. What I think is really interesting through a lot of the things you've said, and particularly bringing in that same neurobiological point of view or the environmental point of view is, you know, one of the things with the conversation around stress, when you go back to the 90s, was it was all your fault. You know, you couldn't manage your own stress. Therefore, it's, you know, your fault. So in many ways, that conversation has changed. But sometimes I worry that we still go back to this, it's still your fault thing. You know, we're, we're doing organisational things, but you've still got to know how to manage it. So, but equally, there is that really important part of people learning, as you said earlier, to, to identify the, the triggers and to find ways of coping. So how do we balance that? What's some of the language? What are some of the approaches? I think that's really good, Sarah. And and thank you for bringing that up because I think, I do believe that it is important for us to recognize that both the organization has a responsibility and the individual has a responsibility. So this is, um, we need to work together here. So I believe that in the past, it was too easily Uh, the responsibility of organizations has been too easily dismissed. There was a focus on, let's just say, just the bottom line, right? And really very little concern to employee well-being, 
And I think that's wrong to put it to put it simply. And I think it also it makes no sense from a business perspective. It's just really short-sighted. So having said that, when we look at uh, research, as I mentioned before, we know that the best results in organizations are a combination of organization-centered approaches or interventions and person-centered approaches and interventions, right? So um, from not only a legal perspective, but also a moral perspective and really from a business perspective, if you really want outcomes as an organization, you, in, you need to implement certain um, policies that ensure you either minimize or hopefully reduce the risk um, uh, you know, of hazards to employee mental health. And not only that, but you const- but you act you actively enhance their well-being, right? And enhance a culture of respect, of civility, camaraderie, whatever you want to call it, whatever your values are. Um, and you will have also a culture of high performance, right? But on an individual level, we all need to be aware. You know, no matter how perfect our childhoods might have been, we've all formed some misinterpretations about reality. That's just part of the human nature. We also need to be aware that at some point in our lives, each and every one of us here um, and each and every one of us in general will go through either anxiety or depression or both. This is just a fact. So, We need to understand that it is our responsibility to listen to our bodies and our brains when they're sending us message. It is our responsibility to get informed. So this is actually, for example, where organizations and people work together, right? So for example, when you look at a prevention program, uh, prevention could be that you're offering your staff um, educational programs so that they learn, okay, what do I need to spot in terms of signs, right? You need to, um, the other aspect that is equally important is emotional regulation skills. Ideally, we should learn them in school. And from what I've seen with my colleagues that work in education, there are steps taken in the education in that right direction, teaching kids about emotional regulation. But I think our generation and certainly the ones before us have not had that. And we are the majority in the workplace right now. And so it is important. And again, the most effective ways to do that is through some cognitive behavioral training and mindfulness training, really. And so, again, this is where organization and individual takes a responsibility. You know, the organization can offer it and then the individual has the responsibility to, you know, I'm going to show up. I'm going to keep an open mind. I'm going to be curious about this. And then I understand the importance of my own self-care. And I say this as someone who has ignored her self-care consistently in the past and not not look at the kind of cognitive distortion. So cognitive distortions is, as I mentioned before, all of us misinterpret things about life when we're kids. We all have cognitive distortions. No one, no individual has, has come through life without them. And so recognizing what are my blind spots and how they make me engage in behaviors that are unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely. And look, as someone who has the T-shirt as well, for burnout and not following my own advice, 
<laughs> you know, around self-care. I get that. Um, one of the things I was interested in is, is that word responsibility. And it's something we talk about a lot in our work too with organisations is everyone has a responsibility and trying to get that that language out there. And it's really interesting and, and, and you know, pleasing actually to hear that there is sort of some language and some phrasing, which is really important. Um, I'm interested around language in particular. Are there other really key terms or, you know, um, um, concepts I'm thinking like the term rewired for example when it comes to you know neurobiology some of these really key terms that would be really useful for people to understand as part of this whole concept yeah so rewire is a good one because I think we need to as I mentioned before we all have those cognitive distortions right we all have some misinterpretations and how do they act they usually act subconsciously so our brain imagine imagine this our brain sits in a black box, right, in our skull. It never sees light. It never has an unmediated um, interaction with the world around us. It only receives electrical impulses through our senses, and it has to make sense of, a, of those impulses, and it creates this representation of reality, this have this movie, right? And how does it do that? Well, we need to understand that the brain is a pattern recognition machine. And we need to understand that is it is also a prediction machine. We predict ourselves into being. Understand this. This is very important. It's not that, oh, what I see is exactly reality. It's a prediction. And it is created by our brain based on a series of categories that it accumulates from birth. Right? So there's an opportunity there. I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, this is incredible. It, it is an absolute it's incredible, right? But there is an opportunity there for for it to be, let's say, bugs in the in the program. And these bugs are what I mentioned before. We are young, we don't understand fully, and we misinterpret. You know, when your parent really wanted to motivate you to get better grades because they cared about your future, because they believe that good grades will get you an advantage in life, right? What you hear is, oh. I'm not good enough in and of myself. I have to do something in order to get the right to feel safe, right? So the right to feel safe and good is not a given right by birth, but rather it is something that you have to work for. And I can tell you that I believe 99% of, of, of humans, if not more, have at some subconscious level this belief because it is very much ingrained in the way we educate children in our educational system as well, in the way, just think about the fact how we deal with failure in education. You know, you test kids, if you get a wrong answer, you're penalized, you're punished, you have a lower grade. I mean, just think, going through however many years of education, 12 years of education, 16 years of education, the message is you have to get the answer right. And there's consequences, right? If you have lower grades in high school, you have less access to university. If you have lower grades, you don't have scholarships. Just think about that. So these categories of interpretation of life, they are absolutely subconscious. Our brain accesses them in milliseconds. And it has to be this way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to function. You don't want to learn every morning how to brush your teeth, for example, or you know, what a car coming at you means or, you know what I mean? But we need to understand that all of us have a series of 
beliefs that makes that make us engage in ineffective behaviors. And we become ineffective either at work or at home in our personal life. And so rewire means that you have the ability to recognize whatever those patterns are and change them. And this is where cognitive behavioral therapy is very powerful. So for example, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, in depression, um, and I'm, I'm going to quote the, doctor, uh, the work of Dr. David D. Burns. So Dr. David D. Burns is a psychiatrist um, in the States. He's, he's an extraordinary human being. And I highly recommend one of his books. If you know someone that is suffering from depression, um, this is an extraordinary book. It's called Feeling Great, The New Mood Therapy for Anxiety, Depression, and blah, 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 something like that. David D. Burns. So there are 12 cognitive distortions that are very common in people who are depressed. And so you need to understand that when something like this is at work, you, if you are the depressed person, it's how you see life. You don't realize that it's not true. So one example is all or nothing thinking. So you think in black or white categories. There is no possibility for the gray, for the middle, right? It's all bad. Just That's just one example. Or um, you interpret little signs as being something negative about you. For example, you see two co-workers, they're talking in a harsh voice and you notice someone may be looking at you and then you're thinking, oh, they must have been talking about me. They just said something bad. Oh, I just see it in their body language. And I'm just so sure about that. There's not a doubt, right? So we all have this, by the way. Right. But people who are depressed have, as I mentioned, there's a series of cognitive distortions and they're very, very, they're very prevalent and they can be changed. And if you read that book, for example, it gives you strategies. Uh, but so much so in the UK, mindfulness based cognitive behavioral therapy is the number one treatment for depression above medicine. This is because there have been so many studies that show it is more powerful. So rewire is a very powerful term. Our genes, our childhood is not our destiny, right? We can change. Um, I'm thinking that, you know, from an organizational point of view, they're knowing that if we're all carrying those and we're all ha have those biases, is there organizational level strategies that we can put in place to address some of these? Or is it a really, it is a really individual experience to, to learn different strategies or to understand those biases and address them? I think both. So as an organization, you need to take into account that there has been, actually the World Health Organization has just published this in, um, I believe, end of March 2022. There has been a 25% increase in anxiety and depression across the globe this year, right? So um, also you need, to, for example, in New Zealand, one in five people have either anxiety or depression or both. And in Australia is one in six. So you know this, right? So chances are in your staff, there will be people who have, who have this. And, and also, by the way, thinking of anxiety and depression is not like, oh, you get a diagnosis. You also have the mood disorder. So what that means is you think of it as a continuum. You have certain symptoms and if left untreated, they, they can become more severe and lead to a more severe clinical diagnosis, right? So as an organization, you know that, you know the numbers, there's a probability that happens in your organization. Well, what you can do is, um, if you look at the level of prevention, you offer programs, right, that have these cognitive behavioral strategies 
and you help people, right? You offer them for your stuff. And in my opinion, to be perfectly honest, I believe that mental health training should be mandatory, just like health and safety training is mandatory, right? Because you should, you, you know, you don't send you don't send um, an individual to operate a crane without going through some training before. Well, it's the same. It's the same thing. Our ability to understand ourselves and to keep ourselves in a state of optimal functioning, of effective functioning, both on a physical level and also interaction with our colleagues, is is crucial. You know, and is very possibly one of the biggest factors for a business success, right? If we're just talking about the bottom line. So as an organization, I would first, I would select the provider very carefully. I would just look, no, tell me exactly what's the methodology you're using. It's not just like, blah, blah, someone's going to talk about stress. What's the methodology you're using? What are the outcomes? How do you measure, right? Get your due diligence before you hire someone. It's not just, oh, let's do some well-being training, for half an hour and hope everyone would be okay. So do due diligence, hire a provider, and then I would make it compulsory, right? And then of course, on the other side is the is the responsibility of the individual. Well, this is done. It's my option. It's my opportunity. And also, I guess, know that not everyone will take that opportunity and that's okay because it might not be the right time for them. It's, it never really falls on completely deaf ears. Some people might pick it up months later, even years later. I think that's, you know, that's a really important one is, is around that training for people. And, you know, one of the things that, look, even as a facilitator myself, you often grapple with going into organisations as you go to deliver a session on stress or burnout or self-care or whatever it is. Uh, but I guess it comes back to those you know, that whole psychosocial piece because it's one thing to deliver the training and it's another entirely for organisations to take those learnings and make some really meaningful changes that will take a long period of time. So what's often that journey that you see for organisations? You know, what's, what's if I think about the people in this room, if they were to come off, you know, listening to this, you know, what are some of the big things that people should be doing straight away on top of the mental health training for staff? Um, run an audit of their psychosocial hazards as I mentioned, using validated instruments, psychometrically validated instruments, using focus groups. That's probably the first thing that you should do. Put a report together for your executive leadership. And this report should include data on the prevalence of mental distress so that you can create that report. I say, look, this is our, these are areas of risk for us. This is what we've seen prevalence. We need to see amongst our people what's happening. And so I suggest running this uh, psychosocial hazards audit and then being prepared for, for some organizational change and then running the audit and then seeing what, what measures you can take. And, and it is true, Sarah, that sometimes some of the changes might take time, but more often than not, I see that even small changes can have a very profound beneficial impact. Oftentimes, executive leadership can be scared if it, if it hears this, but it's not the reality. Sometimes small changes can have an important impact and they don't have to be all done overnight, right? But it's also, but, but on the other hand, one of the things that you can use in that report is that 
it is a legal responsibility for the organization to undertake this training. And one of the things that you can refer to very recently, we've had a case in Australia, we uh, Kozarov versus Victoria, where the Australian High Court decided decided in favor of the employee who received compensation, right, for the fact that the employer failed its obligation to provide um, sufficient support in, in reducing the psychosocial hazard. So in this case, we are talking about vicarious trauma. This person was a prosecutor and was experienced to vicarious trauma through her work, and the employer was found guilty in not providing sufficient support. So this is happening, right? And it's a trend that we won't be able to reverse. So this is one example that you can take to your um, to your employer and say, you need to look at this carefully. Not only, as I said, it's a legal obligation, but also if you want to have a thriving company, people are less likely to put up with toxic cultures than they used to be in the past. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-Wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.